We return to God's Word in the letter or epistle to the Hebrews, and we are entering the ninth chapter today, as Brother Ben read for us just a moment ago, and what a glorious text it is. You know, um, we'll see a similar argument today. The uh, letter to the Hebrews is really a, a letter that has many of similar argumentation throughout it, argument from shadow to substance, from type to anti-type, right? So the idea of being um, partial in fulfillment or picture and fulfillment, and that's what those words mean, right? Shadow, you get something of what is real. The substance of it will come later, and a type points to its fulfillment in an anti-type. And so, again, this is the language that we've been using because this is the language really that Hebrews is pointing to, and we see it over and over again. In fact, over the last several chapters, we've been seeing the argument that the fullness of all that was given in the Old Testament is seen in Christ. He is the fulfillment. He is that substance. And we could walk through it and see, again, Melchizedek, right, uh, was a greater priest than Aaron. And that wasn't a mystery to us uh, if we carefully read Genesis as we went, right? It didn't have to be revealed at a later time. It was given to us there that Abraham, in whose loins was Levi, paid a tithe to Melchizedek, showing that he was of greater status, and therefore the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of Aaron. And so this is the message that we've seen. A greater high priest was promised and fulfilled in Christ, and a greater not only priesthood, but embodied in a perfect priest. The Aaronic priesthood or Levitical priesthood could never reach perfection, could it? It had, if you will, things about it that made it imperfect. Well, what were those things? It was administered by men. Right, Men, with all their issues and the fact that we are a fallen people, we were not sinless ourselves, if you will. So the Aaronic priesthood could never enter into the Holy of Holies without first doing what? Sacrificing for their own sins, right? the priest's own sin. And that will be key to Hebrews chapter 9. We won't get to this as much today, uh, but we will get there next week on the importance of understanding the flow of things on that day of Yom Kippur, the Holy of Holies, what happens in the Holy of Holies on that day of atonement. And so again, we'll look at that more next week, but, but think about that for a moment. And then we saw again, even things like the tabernacle, so glorious in the, in the old covenant, so glorious in the, the revelation of God given there and in the lives of the people of God in the Old Testament age, even that, the author says, was not what you thought it was. But that if you'd read carefully, you'd have realized this, that it was never the end in itself, but it was a model. This is literally the word he uses. Right? It was like uh, if you go out and buy a model of a car. You don't own the Corvette that you bought a model of. You own a model of a Corvette, but it shows you what a Corvette is like to some degree. And in the same sense, this was an earthly tabernacle, but the author says, don't you recognize that even in the Old Testament it was telling you that there's a true heavenly tabernacle? We've been very careful with this language. That isn't to say the author of Hebrews is saying the earthly one is false. He just means it's not the substance. It's the shadow. It's not the antitype. It's the type. And so it is made as a model of the true heavenly uh, holy place. And he says this. He says, don't you remember that it was said unto Moses that when you make this temple, make it according to the pattern that I showed you upon the mountain. The pattern or the plan. In other words, 
God gave it to him to show it to be a reproduction. That's the, the Hebrew. You've got to get into the Hebrew word there to see. And when he says pattern, he means make it after something else. And that is the heavenly tabernacle. So the author says, even that pointed to something greater than itself. So if we continue on, we see many of these things were telling us that the Old Testament uh, religious system, the Old Testament covenantal system and sacrificial system was pointing to something in the New Covenant. And we've been through all of that, but it was always pointed that there would be another coming. Moses said, there'll be another one like unto me, and to him you shall listen. Well, who's this other one coming, and how is he like Moses? Well, there are a lot of ways we can understand that, but a covenantal mediator, right? Moses was a covenantal mediator. He co-mediated the old covenant with angels. But Christ mediates alone the new covenant. What other ways are there that this new prophet would be, un, would be like Moses? And it's important to think about this because somebody could say, well, that new prophet that you should listen to, the one like Moses, is Jeremiah. And you've got to be able to say, no, he's not. It's not Jeremiah. It's not Elijah. It's not Elisha. No, it's someone else. And how can we know that? Well, there's another way that Jesus is like Moses, which is God spoke, if you will, through Moses in a unique way as the covenantal head of the people. And in fact, Moses, if we read carefully in the Old Testament, went and got revelation from God directly so that the glory of God shined upon his face. And you'll remember there's these things of Moses veiling his face while that glory passed away or receded away. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we went through that uh, verse last fall to say, listen, if you look at that, the New Testament helps us understand that. He says, as that glory was fading away from Moses' face, that itself was a lesson to you, that the glory of the old covenant fades away. What Paul clearly says in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. But the glory of the new covenant is unlike it. It does not fade away. What does he mean? He means the old covenant was given for a purpose in time, but it was always intended to be surpassed, if you will, by a greater new covenant. Paul says that the new covenant has a glory which surpasses. In other words, he's saying, in essence, the old covenant glorious, but it's as if it had no glory at all compared to that covenant and its glory that surpasses. So again, all this is saying, if you'd read carefully the Old Testament, it testified to you the coming of something greater. And we didn't even deal with Jeremiah 31, right? And the promise of a new covenant. We did last week. I mean, two weeks ago, it's in the text. But, I mean, not today. We haven't even mentioned that. And that's the most obvious evidence for something coming. So all of this is a reminder that the old covenant is pointing to the new covenant. It isn't to be ignored or forgotten, even in this uh, age in which we as believers are under the new covenant, it's a reminder that God had done an amazing work and used that old covenant and the people of Israel for this end to lead us to Christ, as Paul says, to take us by the hand and lead us to Christ, that the end of the law is Christ. And so all of this is to remind us of a greater sacrifice, a greater high priest, a greater sanctuary, a greater offering. Now that's the testimony of Scripture. Now let us go again into chapter 9, as Ben read for us a moment ago, to see where the author wants to go, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which the lampstand, table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, 
And behind the second veil, the part of the holy tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gift and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, if you read that, there is a then and now language to it. He's saying there is something that's happened, and we don't have to wonder what it is. He tells you at the very end of the previous chapter, which we looked at a few weeks ago. He says a new covenant. And he says he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now we need to think about these things to rightly deal with them, but we want to do it under two points today. First of all, the elements of the tabernacle, and second of all, the parable of the tabernacle. And I believe we'll see this in the text today. So beginning with where the 8th chapter ended, he reminds us that there was a better covenant coming based on better promises, sealed in a better sacrifice. And covenant is always made, or testament is always made, based on a death. In the days of the old covenant, it was sealed with blood, sacrifices, and the new covenant was too. Jesus says that. This is the blood of the new covenant, right? Sealed in his blood, purchased by his blood. This is important for us to recognize. And he says, therefore, the purpose of the old covenant, which was to point us to Christ, in some ways has become obsolete and is even now ready to pass away. Ready to pass away. So he says the other covenant is outdated. Now this would be surprising, if you will, I think, to Jewish Christians in this day. They'd be struggling with this because they'd say, well, the Jerusalem temple yet stands. This is in the mid-middle 60s A.D. It still stands, and there are priests ministering in just the way you're about to talk about, and there are sacrifices going on even as we speak, and there will be a Yom Kippur again this day, this year, I mean. This year there will be another day of atonement in which the high priest will enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of bulls and goats, right? A bull or bullock for his own sins and the goat for the sins of the people of Israel. That will happen again this year. So how can you say it's obsolete or passing away? But the reality is it was. And in fact, four years hence, the temple is no more. Destroyed. Gone. The Romans come in and absolutely level the place. And then there is no more of this system going on. And so he's saying even here before that happens, these things are about to happen. But notice one of the things that he's been telling us about is that under a new covenant, the covenant has canon with it. Instructions, rules, laws with it. The old covenant was no different. You may remember earlier he said if there's a change in priesthood, there must necessarily be a change in law. Well, why is that? He's given us the answer. 
He said Jesus, as a high priest according to Melchizedek, could not function under the old covenant. Why? He wasn't a Levite. Jesus had no authority to enter into the Holy of Holies. He couldn't even enter into the holy place, much less the holiest place. That's strange for us to think about, isn't it? But the law required that those that ministered inside the holy place and the holiest of holies could be, first of all, in the holy place, Levitical priests, and in the holiest of holies, only one Levitical priest, which is the high priest, right? Chosen for that end. Jesus could not fill those roles. So again, it's a reminder to say that if Christ is going to be the high priest, it can't be under that covenant. There must be a new covenant. And this is what this author has been arguing all along, that we must have a new covenant, an eschatological covenant, that has a Melchizedekian high priest. And Christ is that high priest. So all this is what's been argued, and it leads to this moment, because he says, Indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances. This means more or less rules, doesn't it? It had rules. There were rules you had to follow. If I'm of a different tribe than Levite and I try to barge in to the holy place, I'm going to be struck dead. Right? If I try to enter the holy of holies, I mean, that would be instantaneous, right? I mean, instantaneous. Even the high priest wore bells when he entered the holy of holies. And he did this because if they heard them stop moving, they figured he dropped dead in the holiest place. There's some legends, I think Josephus is one of the ones that that says that it's very possible that they would tie a rope around the high priest when he entered. Because if he dropped dead in there, they had no way to go in to retrieve him other than to drag him out by a rope. Is that true? I don't know, but it makes sense. If he went in there and erred or sinned or didn't go through the proper steps as the, the Word of God required, he had no standing before holy and righteous God. And you'd imagine that he would drop dead immediately. And we'll talk a little more about what he had to do next Sunday to enter, but it's important to the argument of chapter 9. But again, we want to realize that all this is to tell us there were ordinances, there were rules, there were things that were given that must be followed. I think the ESV uses the word regulation if you have an ESV. Same idea, rules and regulations that were given, they must be followed, they are not optional. You don't have the, the option of saying, well, I'm going to do it differently. It's like introducing strange fire. That didn't go so well, right? Again, we must recognize this to be true. So God has given direct instruction about the religious system, uh, the priestly system, the sacrificial system that must be followed. And God gave it to Israel. Now the point is precise here. right? You could not administer the Old Testament religious system in whatever means you desired. You just couldn't do it. There are important rules given, and the author of of Hebrews wants us to start this chapter by thinking about that. He gave them rules and, and practices that were pointing to something greater than themselves, and he was also giving them a tabernacle that pointed to something greater than itself. Now, it's not hard to figure out what some of those things are, right? The tabernacle itself points to Christ. There's this amazing moment when you see the, the fulfillment, if you will, of the tabernacle is, in a sense, the temple Temporal in the Old Testament, it is built in place of the tabernacle as a stationary place of worship. But Jesus, in Mark's gospel, when he enters in in his triumphal entry, he goes into the temple and it says that he looks around. What amazing moment this is that the 
true glory of God tabernacled among us is in this place that represented that very thing. So again, when you think about this, recognize these pictures that are given to us. Now, it's interesting also that this author begins to talk about the tabernacle. Look at verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared in the first part. Now, why would he talk about the tabernacle? If he wants to go back to the Old Testament and talk about the presence of God amongst his people, covenantally, why not talk about the temple? We just mentioned the temple was kind of the, it would seem to be the grand end of what happened in the Old Testament, right? It seemed to be the temple. In fact, I think if you talk to most Israelites, uh, in the days after the temple was destroyed, they would dream not of having a tabernacle again, but of having the temple again. When they returned from Babylonian exile, when the temple had been torn down, they didn't think, well, let's just bypass the temple this time and just go back to a tabernacle. They said, no, we want to rebuild the temple. But the author of Hebrews doesn't even talk about the temple here. He talks about the tabernacle. Now, why does he do that? I think there's three reasons. First of all, the tabernacle is the thing God actually directly gave in connection with the giving of the covenant. So first of all, I think he sees the covenantal tie of the old covenant to the tabernacle even stronger in some sense than he does the temple. Although the temple, if you will, was just a stationary building up and making a place beautiful where the tabernacle could could abide, if you will, more permanently. You may remember that David had built his his own palace and it was with paneled cedar and it looked so beautiful and he, he began to say, it's not right that I dwell in a paneled house and the ark of God, God's presence, dwell in a tent. I think in some ways that was a noble thought, right? God didn't ask him to do that, but it was a noble thought. The prophet says, hey, do whatever seems good to you. That sounds good to me. It's on his way out, right, that God speaks to him and says, no, go back and tell him no. It's not your job to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, David, a lineage, a house. Right? And it's for another to do this thing. Solomon will build this temple. So in thinking about that, again, I think he sees it a little more, at least temporally tied to the giving of the Old Covenant. But also think about this. If you want to make an illustration of the passing away nature of the Old Covenant, what better than the tabernacle which doesn't exist at that point? Already, you can say, when God gave the tabernacle... He didn't say anything of the temple, and yet it was changed in some sense. What was not in a permanent location was given a permanent location, right? What was not made out of some of the fixtures of beauty, and by the way, the the temple was larger, had more courts, and all these things that were done when they built the temple, those things were not in the original design, right? There was a court, but there wasn't like a court of the Gentiles and all that sort of thing. They added that later. They enlarged it, if you will. God didn't seem troubled by that. He seemed to authorize that. But again, if it is changeable, it isn't permanent. That's his point. What is subject to change is temporal. That which is eternal doesn't change. God, for instance, doesn't change. Author of Hebrews will make that argument later. So again, we need to see some of these points and recognize this. And then third, the very nature of the tabernacle itself speaks to impermanence. It never rested in any one place very long. I mean, think about if you were uh, one of the Levites in charge of the, the tabernacle. You packed it up, you carried it along, you put it down somewhere else, you followed God's glorious presence, 
You would set it back up and it never stayed anywhere long. The very nature of it, if you will, spoke to its impermanence. In fact, you might use a word like transitory. Right? It was a transitory place. It moved from place to place. What more could speak of something not being permanent than that? So the author of Hebrews is just simply saying, think about these pictures and what they were meant to teach us. That tabernacle was never the fullness. It was a shadow of something greater. It was a shadow of something that is permanent. The sanctuary of heaven and the one who dwells among us as the glory of God tabernacled among us. The second person of the Trinity, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the point he's getting to. And so he's, he's saying, think about this tabernacle and think about the very things that it taught us because it had elements to it. Now what it shared with the temple was some of the things that the author now wants to talk about. There were strict directions given by God in the tabernacle and those things could not be abrogated in the temple. They had to be carried over into the temple. God isn't changing in this regard, right? He's not saying, well, we had sacrifice before, maybe we don't need it now. No, if you think about the the tabernacle and the temple, they're very similar in some regards, right? In the tabernacle, you had the, the outer wall of curtains that separated it from the camp, although it was in the center of camp. You would enter into that uh, outer wall, if you will, into that court of the tabernacle, and you would see the, the brazen uh, laver and altar that were there. Those were very important to the functioning of the tabernacle in that you had to have a place to wash yourself, and you had to have a place to offer sacrifice. There were also tables for sacrifice and things like that. But, but the main things there were those two big uh, pieces, if you will, of, of divinely ordained furniture that were there for the use of the sacrificial system. And then you would look to the back, if you will, of this space, and you would see a tent, a tabernacle. It was there, right? And this was called the agios, is what our author refers to, holy place. The holy place. And we know that the Levitical priests would minister in there. And our author tells us that there were certain things in that first part, which is to say the lampstand, right? Uh, a menorah, so to speak. This was important in the functioning of the tabernacle because you had to have light, right? Light was important to the functioning of the tabernacle. But not only that, there was the, the table and the showbread, which this is really often called the table of the showbread. Right, or the table of the bread of God's presence. And if you remember about this from uh, the Torah, this is a, a table which had 12 loaves of bread upon it. And they were baked and presented on that table on the Sabbath, and they would remain there until the next Sabbath when they were removed and new loaves were put on there. Six over top of six, if you're looking at the table, six and six. And these represented the 12 tribes of Israel and God's provision for those tribes. Now these... This bread was to be eaten, of course, by the priests. We can get into a whole thing on that, but we'll say what our author says. There's much to say and not much time to say it. Uh, You could go through the entire Bible and talk about this bread and how it's used and some things we might learn about it. But, But again, recognize this. It isn't hard, our author is saying, to see how these things point to Christ. Christ is the light of the world. Christ is the light that entered the world and John's Gospel, chapter 1, that the darkness cannot withstand. And what about the bread? Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, the true bread. This represents, again, if you think about that table, these loaves of God's 
providing his providence for his people, we'd be reminded immediately of the manna in the wilderness, which we're going to come back to in a moment. How God provided for his people when there was no food. God provides. God provides. So again, in seeing these, again, we can see immediately how this sanctuary and the elements within it point to Jesus. But he says that's not all you'd see if you could enter in to that first curtain. And by the way, probably none of us here could, right, if we were there. But if you go into that curtain and you see these things and you look ahead and you see, oh, wait, there's something else. There's another curtain. And this one's ornate and beautiful. And it has cherubim on it, right, stitched into the curtain itself, an image of cherubim. And this is a reminder of what? I mean, Jews would get this pretty quick, right? The barring of God's presence east of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, right? Angels with flaming swords barred the way back into God's presence. Well, God's presence cannot be entered into lightly, right? So there are these cherubim that are there designed to remind you, stay out. You think, well, that doesn't apply to the high priest. Yes, that's true. But only one day a year is he allowed to enter by God's command and under the authorization of the way that God has commanded for it to happen. If he doesn't go through the proper sacrifice, if he just says, I'm not going to offer the bullock this year. Or he says, you know what, I'm going to offer the bullock, but I'm not going to apply its blood to the horns of the altar. Or I'm not going to apply it when I get in there to the Ark of the Covenant. What's going to happen to him? I think he's going to drop dead, right? Sinning in God's presence is not going to work out well. So again, I think when you look at this, you recognize that the message here is stay away. Keep out of God's presence. This is why it's so glorious what we read about in this very letter where the author of Hebrews tells us as believers we can come boldly into God's presence, boldly approach Him. There is something fundamentally different about what happened in Christ than even what was happening in the Old Covenant. And that's what we're going to be looking at next Sunday. Uh, There's a lot here in these ten verses. But if you were able to go into that holiest of all, if you were that high priest appointed and it was the day of Yom Kippur and you'd gone through all the steps you were to go through and you entered into that curtain, what would you see? Well, author says two things which causes uh, a whole lot of confusion because he mentions here in the, uh, in the New King James, it says here uh, a censor, uh, the idea of the thing that you carry, uh, if you will, the incense in. But a lot of the other translations will say it was an altar of incense, and that's actually what's intended here. Uh, because, uh, but it causes some confusion because in the law, in the Torah, the altar of incense was in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. And so a lot of people are like, oh, it doesn't make any sense what the author's doing here. But I think it makes perfect sense if you think about what he's arguing here. The argument of this uh, chapter is not... Let's get into the very specific things about the Old Testament law. He's making a more specific point of who can enter into the presence of God. Who can enter into the presence of God? And in the Old Covenant, the closer you got to God, the less and less people could enter. And even then, they had to do it as God ordained and no other way. So we see you had Aaron in one sense. You had Moses in another sense. But most of Israel had to stay back off the mountain, didn't they? 
And as they come to the tabernacle, it's the same way. Some can enter the court, a few can enter the holy place, but only one can enter the holiest place and only how God demands. In that sense now, the altar of incense will make a little more sense. Because I think in our author's mind, he's tying how you enter the holiest place. One man enters based on a sacrifice first for his own sins of a bull, and then he's going to sacrifice a goat. He's going to take its blood also in, and he's going to have a scapegoat, right, that he lays his hands on, uh, putting the sins of Israel upon it and taking it outside the camp. So we're going to get into that more next week. But again, as he comes in, he must first of all put blood on the horns of the altar of incense. And he must bring incense in with him into the holiest place. That's why censer was probably thought of by interpreters as a good thing, but he would bring some sort of censer in with him. But I think the author here is just thinking, let's just say the altar of incense because it's all a part of it. It's a part of the ministrations of this to bring that incense into the presence of God and to bring this blood into the presence of God into the holiest place right there at the Ark of the Covenant and to sprinkle the blood on the Ark, on the mercy seat. This is what's being pictured here, I think, and that's why he says it that way. And so we see this idea just outside that curtain of the altar of incense, but also here now, tying with that the Ark of the Covenant, on which both things, the blood, must be placed on Yom Kippur. But notice he says there was also some things inside the Ark. Now we know this, uh, this is spoken about often, but notice what he says. First of all, a golden pot with manna in it. Manna was a reminder of God's providence, but also God's judgment, right? Because the people rebelled against even the manna, even the gift of God, they rebelled against it. You might argue that John's playing on that a little bit in John chapter 1. He came unto his own, his own wouldn't receive him. The bread from heaven came to his people, his people wouldn't receive him. In the same way, they got tired of the provision of God in the manna in the wilderness. It's kept there as a testimony, if you will, to this. God's providence and man's rebellion. You can see a theme there, can't you? Because what's next? Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron's rod was the testimony that God had selected him for leadership because the people rebelled against his leadership. So again, God's providence of a leader, the evidence of that in this budded rod, and people's rebellion against it. There's a theme to these things that are in the ark and the tablets of the covenant. God graciously gave Right? We talk about it uh, in terms last Sunday of understanding these covenants. But God didn't have to give them this. He didn't have to call Israel as a people. He gave them this law, this law that set them apart and made them a holy people unto Him and gave them this, uh, this amazing system, if you will, and gave them the divine wisdom of God manifest in the law. And they rebelled against it over and over again. So all these things, there's a common theme here. But he says this is the place where mediation is made, intercession is made, atonement in a sense is made. Right? Atonement is not just the slaughtering of the animal, but it's the applying of the blood of that animal. We made this point a few weeks ago. If the high priest slaughtered the animals right at the altar but failed to carry the blood in, it didn't avail. The blood must be applied. It's going to be very important, by the way, to the argument of Hebrews 9 and 10. So we need to recognize this. So all these things were given, if you will, that we might understand that they pointed to something greater than themselves. 
because they had to be done over and over and over again. This is the argument earlier in Hebrews, isn't it? They had to be done over and over and over again. They were never finished. But praise God, there's a sacrifice given now that is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. And praise God, He never lies. It was finished. And now in the heavenly tabernacle, it says He sits down at the right hand of the Father. No high priest could ever sit down, could he, in the Holy of Holies. He had to think, I need to get out of here as quick as possible, do my job, intercede, place the blood, and get out. I can't abide here long. Our high priest abides forever in the presence of God, ruling and reigning. So again, our author is telling us here that this is something important. There is one by whom we are reconciled by the blood of the Lamb of God. And that brings us to our second point, which will be quick. The parable of the tabernacle. Now, when I say here that it's clear that the tabernacle was to teach us something and point us to something, I'm saying nothing other than what the author of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews is not simply and cleverly looking back uh, to Old Testament history and saying, how can I spin this in such a way that it'll make it look Christian? You know, some of the early church fathers, when you read them, they took some of those parables of Jesus, came up with some amazing things out of those that I think go way beyond what Jesus intended. But is that what he's doing? Is he going back and saying, hey, listen, uh, I can go back to the tabernacle and spin a few things to make you think it pointed to Christ. No, he's saying it literally pointed to Christ and always was intended to point to Christ. That was its purpose always, always. Now he says that here. He says all this stuff points to Christ. And actually, uh, we can see this throughout chapters 8 and 9. Because he says here, if you look in in chapter 9, verse 8, he says something very important. He says, the Holy Spirit indicating this. Now, if you just follow past the the verses we read, he says, now, when these things had been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle to perform their service. He just means the general Levitical priests were able to go into that first compartment, the holy place, and do their service, verse 7. But in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. We're going to come back that, to that next week, committed in ignorance. It's going to tell us something important about the difference between the Old Testament and New, but, but we'll come back to that. But then he says about this, the Holy Spirit indicating this, indicating this, and this is de lowo. This is means something like teaching us something, revealing something, making something clear. He was indicating and teaching us by something that shows the limitations of the old covenant system that are replaced by something greater in the new covenant. Now, not only does it say that, but look at the next verse. It was symbolic, symbolic for the present time. Symbolic. Parabole, this is the word we get parable from. He says this is like a parable, if you will. What is a parable? It's been a while since we've gone through some parables, uh, but we went through the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll remember the, the word parable means to cast alongside, something like that, right? It's to throw something out there that reflects on something else. In a sense, it's like a shadow, but it's usually done in more of a, a story way or a pictorial way. It, it's something that shows us or reveals something else. So he says in one sense the the earthly tabernacle pointed us to a more glorious heavenly tabernacle, but also all the things that went on in that system were pointing us to something great, something we need, something permanent, something availing and effective. That's what Paul argues in Second Corinthians 3, that what was there before was imperfect because it, it couldn't do all that 
God intended to do, not in it, right? God knew always it was for a time and for a limited purpose, but the fullness of God's plan of redemption could not be accomplished in the Old Covenant. He didn't give it for that purpose. This is what Paul says over and over again. He didn't give it for that purpose. He gave it to prepare us for the covenant that would avail. That's what he argues in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're not familiar with that, go read that today. It's important. Again, he says it's a parable for something. It's thrown alongside to teach you of something else. As you look at that old covenant and its sacrificial system, you were to say, man, it's important. And it has certain uh, things that it affects. And we'll look at this next week about... um, keeping people in the land of Israel, by the way, the land of promise. There are things like that that need to be discussed. But it could never save anyone. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It could not justify people before a holy and righteous God. I think we said last Sunday that the great uh, Puritan John Owen said, no one is saved by the Old Covenant even though people are saved under it. People were in the Old Covenant era and were saved by faith, but nobody was saved by the ministrations of the Old Covenant. This is what Paul's argument is when he says, Abraham believed God. Even before the law was ever given, he believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. David didn't say, blessed is the man who goes to the temple and runs through the machinations of the sacrificial system. He said, blessed is the one whose sins are not imputed to him, not held against him, accounted to him. David understood these things. That's Paul's argument in Romans. This was understood by the people of God. If they could see beyond, if you will, sometimes what was commonly taught. And so when we look at this, we need to recognize that what he's saying is that this temporal imperfect covenant pointed to an eschatological perfect covenant. That the imperfect sacrifice of the old covenant pointed to a perfect sacrifice in Christ. An imperfect high priest to a perfect high priest. All these things that we've been dealing with at length. Now my friends, I'm going to go along with the author of Hebrews here. He says, uh, and above it were the cherubim and the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. There's too much here. There's too much. In fact, there have been preachers that just preached on the tabernacle and its way of pointing to Christ, right? You could do that for three months. For three months. All of this is pointing to something very important. The blood of bulls and goats could not avail what God intended to do. It was given as a temporary measure to point forward to something greater. I think we know that that's going to be Christ, right? That is, from their perspective, going to be Christ. In our perspective, it is Christ, right? He's come and done it, and we can thank God for that. But the message of Hebrews is what? Why would you want to go back to what you had when you now have the substance of what it pointed to? Now think about this. As these people are thinking about, these Jewish Christians, about leaving the church and going back to the synagogue... He's saying, think about what you're doing here. You're reversing the order of God's revelation. You're going from substance to shadow. That's as if saying we're still waiting. It's as if denying Christ. And he says denying Christ is a very dangerous thing to do. 